The gospel today is um, particularly chosen for the uh, time of the year that we're um, observing at this time. The time of the year is that next week, next Sunday, is the final Sunday of the what's called the liturgical year. I'm presuming that many of you are aware that the Catholic Church does not run on the calendar year. We run on the liturgical year. And the liturgical year always begins four Sundays before Christmas. And so if you count, Christmas this year is on a Sunday. So four Sundays before that is the Sunday after next. And that is the first Sunday of Advent, which is the first Sunday of the liturgical year. Now, so what's happening now? What's happening now is the liturgical year is kind of like a, a wheel. And the only thing that switches are the readings. The readings um, follow one, one year we do the Gospel of Matthew, the next year we do the Gospel of Mark, then we do the Gospel of Luke. John is sprinkled throughout the entire year, every single year. So, what's happening now is that since next Sunday is the final Sunday of the liturgical year, next Sunday is the Feast of Christ the King. The Church always ends the liturgical year by giving glory to Jesus, the King of the universe. So the Sunday before that, the church wants us to start, start thinking about the end. The end of time, the end of your life, the end of history, because one of the, one of the, the important understandings to have about the Jewish Christian understanding of reality is that it's very different from the ancient world. See, in the ancient world, time was considered to be cyclical. People thought that it just went around and around and around and around, and that the world was eternal. The universe was eternal. It was the Jews who first began to understand, because God was revealing it to them, that they were on a journey, but the journey was not in circles. The journey was going somewhere. Okay. I always like to explain to people that in the ancient world, time was like a merry-go-round. You know, that's why you don't have a lot of histories. You have some, but the reason is, imagine somebody asked you to sit on a bench for two hours and write the history of a merry-go-round. What would you write? Well, some people got on and some people got off, and some people got on and some people got off. You get to the point of saying, okay, so what? And so you, you don't spend a lot of time doing that. 
But once you have the revelation that God gives to Abraham, that he will be the father of many nations and that he will be taking him to the promised land. And then when Jesus comes along and, and at the end of time, notice the second reading was the prophet talking about the day of the Lord at the end of time. So the Hebrews began to see time not as a merry-go-round, but as a journey forward, as a journey going somewhere. And that's why they wrote history, because they were going somewhere and they were keeping track. And by the way, uh, just let me do a parenthesis here. That's the whole, the whole background of progressive. Now, I'm not talking about progressivism. Uh, secular progressivism is the part of the Democratic Party. Uh, but progressive just means, you can hear it every once in a while when you hear uh, somebody like Obama say, uh, you're on the wrong side of history. Well, if history is a circle, uh, you don't need to have a wrong side. It's a particularly Judeo-Christian concept that you're going somewhere. We're so used to it that uh, we don't think about it anymore. Um, but just to continue the parentheses for a second, I want to recommend a book to you that I really, really found helpful. Um, the book is called The Air We Breathe. The Air We Breathe. And it's a book about uh, how we, he uses this image that I really like. And the image is that we are like goldfish and we're in, a, in a, an aquarium and a bigger fish comes to this little group of goldfish and says, how's the water today, fellas? And the little goldfish go, what's water? Um, they've never seen water. What? Because they're in it. And they don't realize how much they are permeated by water. And this book does that. He shows you the, our entire culture and how it's a product of the Christian tradition. And things that you never imagined, I highly recommend it. It's called The Air We Breathe. But anyway, let me go back onto the main truck, the main truck here. So the Catholic Church now is in, encouraging us to remember that time is not infinite. It's not infinite. You can feel it in your life. Those of us who are a little older, um, you can feel your body sort of uh, decomposing right under you. You can tell that your human life is not a circle. You can tell you're getting older and older and older. Okay? And uh, the end is coming. Maybe not the end of the world, but the end of you and me. That is, by the way, this, in, in graduate school, they call that eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the eschaton. And the eschaton is, in Greek, the end. The study of the end. Now, 
The Catholic Church, I think, has, has a very important message. You see, the church doesn't want us to look at, to look at life through rose-colored glasses. The church doesn't want us to, to say, oh, everything's fine. You know, let's be optimistic. Folks, sooner or later, your optimism will give out. Okay? Because sooner or later, you're going to die. Uh, and your optimism will not be in force on that day. So what the church wants us to do, and the Christian tradition wants us to do, is to listen to Jesus and be serious about when Jesus says, the end is coming. The end is coming. Get ready. And Jesus gives a lot of parables about that. And sometimes people say, oh, Father, when I've given homilies like this before, they'll say, oh, Father, that was such a downer. Well... If you're, if you're getting on the Titanic and uh, you know what the future is, I'd like to know uh, what's going on at the end. I don't care if it's a downer. It is what it is. So Jesus today is giving this message, but I want you to, to listen to the message, and I want to break it down because it's really interesting because he is talking about not only the end of the temple, when he's talking about the temple. But mixed in with that, he's also talking about the end of time. Let me give you an example that I've always enjoyed. I want you to imagine a, uh, I want you to imagine an accordion. And an accordion pressed together. And so all the ballasts are here in the middle. Okay? Now I want you to imagine that an artist comes, and while the accordion is pressed together, the artist paints a picture on the ballasts of the accordion. And you can see the beautiful picture as long as the accordion is compressed. But what happens when the accordion is expanded? Well, you don't see it. You don't see it, or you can see it, but not very well. Now, one, this is, taught, one of my professors taught me this. Prophecy is like that. When a prophet, including Jesus, is seeing and saying something about the future, you got to imagine it like an artist painting a picture on a compressed, on a compressed accordion. Jesus is seeing it, and you are seeing it. You're seeing it because there, he is talking about time compressed. But the way it is lived out, it is this way. Okay? And Jesus is speaking. So in Jesus today is speaking about not only the end of the temple, but he is also speaking about the end of the world. And he, and he goes on about that. Now, He's talking about the end of three different, shall we say, three different ways of life or three different structures by which we make sense of life. I want you to imagine the temple 
or the temple stands for religion. And then the second one is the government or politics. And then the third one is nature. We make sense of life by our attending the, to the faith. We make sense of life by our way of government. And we make sense of life by the rhythms of nature. Okay? What Jesus is describing, if you pay close attention, Jesus is describing the ultimate disruption of all three parts. First, he begins with the temple. People are saying, oh, how beautiful it is. And please understand, for the Jews of that time, the temple was not just a pretty church. For, the temp for them, the temple was a mirror image of God's existence on earth of what was in heaven. Um, as a matter of fact, I found something very interesting in the curtain, remember that, that when Jesus dies, the curtain is torn in half. Well, the curtain in the temple had was woven with an image of all the constellations of the sky that they could see. Okay? So it was glittering stars on a black background. The temple represented the universe. Okay? And so... For them, the prediction of the, the destruction of the temple already meant the destruction of the universe because God resided in the temple on earth and there was a copy of the temple in heaven. And behind the universe, behind the cloth where the, all the stars were on it, that's where the Holy of Holies was. And they would imagine that when they looked up, what they were seeing was the curtain of night, the curtain of the sky, the first heaven, and then the heaven beyond that was where God resided. Okay? He resided there. So, the very first thing that Jesus responds to, the people are marveling this tremendous, beautiful temple. And so Jesus ever, ever wanting to put on the wet blanket. And Jesus says, you see all this beautiful things? There will come a time when there will not be one stone left upon another. Now, when you, if you heard that as a Jew of the first century, it would have scared the bejeebies out of you. It was like... Uh, like world war with an atomic uh, understanding, that the world was annihilated. Okay? And so and Jesus is predicting that. It's interesting because when Jesus predicted that, it's probably around the year 30, 31, and 40 years later, the Romans came because the Jews had a war, they started a war to throw the, the Romans out, and in those days, you didn't mess with Rome. And uh, the Caesars, because see, Rome was everything. Rome was, uh, Rome made the United States, in our imagination, look pale. 
because they, they were the entire known world, okay? As a matter of fact, when you wanted to, um, in, in the ancient world in Rome, when you wanted to say hello to another person, um, a lot of times you would do what the Nazis did. And the Nazis, you know, Heil Hitler? Well, where do you think, um, where do you think, uh, Hitler got this thing, this thing? That was the ancient Roman understanding. When two Romans, especially people in the, uh, in, in the military would see each other, they would not do this. They would do this. Okay? And, uh, and they were, they wouldn't say Heil Hitler, of course. They would say, they would say, um, Kaiser Christos. Kaiser Christos. Kaiser Christos. What is that? Kaiser, it's not the, the name, the name that the Rus Russians used came from the word Caesar. Kaiser, Caesar. Pronounced in a Middle Eastern language. And it meant Lord. Kaiser meant Lord, and it means Lord. And so when he, they said Kaiser Caesar, they meant hail to Caesar the Lord. And all of a sudden you have this group of people who when they come together, you have this group of people who are saying Kaiser Yezu, Kaiser Yeshua, but they didn't do this. They would say, no, Jesus is Lord. Well, the Romans didn't take kindly to that. And the Jews didn't take kindly to it either because there was one Lord either. But the, the Romans were willing to tolerate the Jews because they were strange anyway. So they made an exception with the Jews. But when the Jews started fighting back against the Romans to try to expel them because they had several, quote, messiahs who came saying that they were the messiah and God was going to liberate them from the, the foot that was crushing them of Rome. So they went ahead and followed those military leaders. And guess what? They didn't turn out to be the messiahs because Rome sent several legions and literally, and I'm saying literally, they crushed all of Jerusalem, raised it down to the ground, okay? And what they did, they took the temple and they took the time to take the stones and to bring them down. The only thing that was left was that wall that's left today. Why do you think that happened? Because the Romans wanted to wipe out. They killed several hundred thousand people. They killed them. They didn't want hardly any Jews. And the Jews that left were all going to different places. So the temple was raised. And not only that, they crucified, when you read, when you read the history of this, they crucified several hundred people at the same time. People who saw it would see on the hill crosses all around the city of Jerusalem, and people nailed to crosses. The Romans weren't kidding. They, you said, you don't mess with Rome. So Jesus is predicting 
the fall of Jerusalem. And by the way, just to give you an update, the Romans brought in people when they threw the, the, uh, the Jews out, and they changed the name of Judea. Guess what name they gave it? Palestine. Palestine. That's where you get today the whole issue of Palestinians and Jews having a problem because they were people settled there by the Romans and they've been there for a long time. So there you have the end of the world, meaning the end of the end of the temple. But then notice that Jesus goes on to say, <clears throat> you will hear of wars and rumors of wars and kings will rise against kings. What Jesus is referring to is also the toppling of governments. And nobody could imagine that. Nobody could imagine that because nobody could imagine the toppling of Rome. And Jesus is saying, when the end comes, even governments, that which you think is your, you, you count on to give you your sense of identity, that will be gone. Folks, we not need to remember, sooner or later, the United States will not exist. Sooner or later. I don't know when it will happen, but sooner or later, it will not exist. Okay? And God knows what's coming, what's coming in the future. But governments will go against governments. But then notice where he goes. He says, there will be awesome signs in the sky. He is saying nature itself will be disrupted. Nature itself will implode in, on itself. <clears throat> so all of the things that we use to orient ourselves to where we are and where we're going, all of that is going away. Now, you read about this in the book of the Apocalypse. Now, when you read the book, <coughs> when you read the book of the Apocalypse, Please remember, don't read it as the horror, okay, of what's about to happen. Yeah, it's, it's pretty gory, but don't read it like that. Why? Because at the very end of the book of the Apocalypse, what you have is the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And what has been defeated? In the Apocalypse, what you're saying is you're seeing first century and pre-first century imagery that stands for military uh, and their structure of their universe. It's kind of like um, the one, the one, one, the way I like to exp to think about it is it was their Star Wars. It was their Star Wars. You know, they did, we have imagery of the future and stuff like that. Well, they had imagery of dragons and beasts and, and, uh, and stuff like that and destruction because they understood that the, um, that the universe was like a big dome and God was there and God resided up there. So what they're talking about, and by the way, the word apocalypse comes from apo, which means away, and lipse, calypse, which means veil. So it's the taking away of the veil, okay? So 
It's actually a book of encouragement. Now you may say, well, it's a heck of a way to give you encouragement. But it is, because when the apocalypse was written, it was written for a group of people who were being massacred by Rome. Because Rome began to put Christians to death. I mean, emperors like Nero and Diocletian and different emperors, they began killing Christians in, you know, I always, I always imagine it. You imagine you taking a time machine and going back into that time and standing before the emperor after you get arrested by a Roman soldier. You say to the emperor, I have been, my rights have been violated. I have been victimized. And the emperor would look at you and say, Oh, what rights? Human rights, by the way, comes from the Jews and the Christians. The ancient world had no idea of human rights. And as to victimize, you say you're victimized. Guess what? We enjoy it. As a matter of fact, we have a circus called the Colosseum. And we put you in there to watch you be torn apart in many different ways. And when you are torn apart and die, everybody applauds. So welcome to Rome. Where do you think we got our values? Welcome to Rome. You're a victim, all right. You know, that's why I have recommended to you that book, The Air We Breathe, because all of this comes from Christianity. So what's the church doing so that I can bring this homily in for a landing? What the church is doing is saying, look, we don't know when this is going to happen. Why? Because Jesus is giving us a painting on an accordion that is compressed. And he's giving us this picture. But we're living in an expanded time. We know that the universe is not eternal. We know that. I mean, uh, uh, the scientists have already figured that out. I always get a big kick out of this. I promise I won't go on, but big kick out of this because the people in Genesis knew that the world had a beginning before scientists figured it out. You know, it's called the Big Bang, okay? And the Big Bang is because the universe is expanding, and if you can expand it, you can backtrack it, and you come to what's called the singularity, and it goes, pow! As I always tell people, well, hey, you got to have something that goes bang. You don't have nothing go bang. So in the beginning, God said, bang, and the world was created. Okay? So the world is not eternal, as people thought. And just in the last 500 years that that has been understood, that Genesis was right. Okay? And it's not eternal. How it will end, I have, the church has no idea. And by the way, the church just says, look, that's a scientific question. We are not in the business of science. We're in the business of religion. Okay? So, I'll leave you with one last quote. My, my favorite quotes that I've heard in, the recent, in recent time. Science takes things apart to see how they work. Religion puts things together to find out what they mean. That is a tremendously important distinction to make. And the church wants us to understand that we have to understand the meaning 
of what's going on, not just how it works.